0: Welcome to CTSNet To Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTS Net To Go. We hope you enjoy.
1: Hi, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm Mohamed Bashir, and today I'm with a true, uh, renowned uh, international aortic surgeon, um, and a true pioneering and aortic giant, uh, who is also the founding and the director uh, of the Aortic Institute at uh, Yale, and uh, uh, Yale New Haven Hospital. It's uh, Dr. John uh, Alfetriadi's, uh, and I'm truly honoured to spend time with you today and uh, to uh, ask you a few questions about um, the thoracic aortic aneurysm, uh, reading the enemy's uh, playbook. Um, thanks for joining us, Dr. Alfatriadis uh, My first question is, it's a broad question. What's aortic aneurysm to you?
2: Aortic aneurysm is any significant enlargement of the aorta, the main blood vessel of the body. And the definition has been problematic over the years. But uh, what I would use is a diameter of four centimeters. There's probably no human being who should have an aorta more than four centimeters at any level from the aortic valve to the iliac bifurcation. Uh, Others have used a diameter one and a half times than the adjoining normal segment, but it's often difficult to identify uh, an an adjoining normal segment. I think a definition of four uh, uh, is a valuable one. A basketball player who is seven foot two, he might be entitled to a little bit bigger aorta, but four is not a bad number to use.
1: Okay, um you've been the dynamic heart uh, uh, on a multiple facet for the natural history of this of this uh, disease. What do we know now of the natural history of this silent uh, in your words silent killer or or stalker?
2: We took this challenge on like a sports competition yeah. and when we were all playing sports uh, in school, we had a playbook and and that playbook would work for American football, would work for European football, baseball, basketball, wrestling, any sport you can imagine. And Each team's secrets were very closely guarded in that playbook. So starting about 18 years ago we took this as a competition, that this silent killer of thoracic aortic aneurysm had a playbook. And we recognized that we did not know what was contained in that playbook. And we knew that from sports, if you could get the opposing team's playbook, you'd be in a good position for the competition. So for the last 18 years or so, we've been trying to read that book, and we have learned a lot. We have learned that... Aneurysm is a silent disease in the vast majority of patients, which which makes it very dangerous. I wish it were not a silent disease. And we have learned that it tends to rupture or dissect above a certain size criterion, somewhere around five to five and a half centimeters. Uh, We have also learned that that criterion varies based on the individual's body size. So we've been able to specify a nomogram that incorporates body size. Um, And as we put in one section of our journal, uh, of our article in the Jack Journal, J-A-C-C, in 2010, a paradigm of triage to medical management or surgical management, using size as the main criterion, keeps patients safe. Basically, out of hundreds of patients that came to our office um, when they were triaged to surgery or medical management, nobody died. Now the one point that I always emphasize is that size applies only for the asymptomatic patient. The patient with pain of origin in the aneurysm has to be operated regardless of size. And a misunderstanding on that point has hurt many patients. A symptomatic aorta has to be removed regardless of size. We do know that the Aorta is innervated, especially the ACE and the aorta. It's innervated by fine neural fibers. Yeah. And so when it is under great stress, we feel it can, in some individuals, transmit that to the brain and cause pain. So pain has to be very, very highly uh, uh, attended to.
1: Right, Dr. You mentioned the, the the predict the predictions and the predictors of yearly rupture. Um, do we need to do anything more? Do we need to know more?
2: That's a very perceptive question, Mohammed. And I, although I've been a proponent of using size, and size has served our surgical community quite well, I feel very strongly, as your question uh, implies, that. We have to move far beyond size. And we are working hard on engineering parameters. Uh, We've measured them very accurately in the operating room. We'd like to be able to transition to measuring by conventional imaging techniques. I think engineering is critically important to be able to measure the stress in the aorta at different levels. And then I think that the genetics, is critically, critically important. And we're on the threshold of a completely new era. If you think about it, about uh, uh, 12 years ago, uh, maybe 15 years ago, no human genome had ever been mapped. And there was a race between Celera Genomics, headed by Craig Ventner, and a consortium of universities from around the world to map the the first human genome. And it's contested who won. It was pretty, pretty much a draw. But the first human genome ever deciphered was that of Craig Ventner, the president of Celera, yeah. And that cost hundreds of millions of dollars. Now we can map the whole genome, we can sequence the whole genome easily for $5,000. The true cost is probably closer to $1,000. And the $500 genome is right around the corner. So we, we are at an unparalleled uh, opportunity to know the genome of our patients with aneurysms. And then through the work of Diana Milowitz and others, we have categories now of variants or mutations that behave differently. So we will very shortly, and we can already to a certain extent, triage patients based on the particular mutation that they manifest. And we know that mutation A and mutation B and C don't behave exactly the same. So there, there will be a different criterion for every different mutation. And you and I, we're both surgeons, we love to cut out the aorta, we love to put a new aorta in. It's challenging, it's demanding, it takes a lot of skill, and we love doing it. But I think we're on the threshold of a new era where genetics will play a very important role.
1: Good point, good point. Um, You mentioned uh, bioengineering, and there's a question which I'd like to ask you. What are the mechanical properties of the aorta, and how this affects our understanding of natural history?
2: In simple terms, when the aorta grows, when it gets beyond five centimeters, it loses its normal elasticity and you and me, the aorta stretches with every heartbeat. But as it grows above five centimeters it loses its elasticity and it becomes a rigid tube. So every heartbeat is translated to a tremendous tensile force in the aortic wall. And if it exceeds the ultimate tensile strength of the aorta the aorta will tear. And that's what we believe happens with aortic dissection. If we take pieces of human aortic tissue and we stretch them in two directions, which we do with our um, uh, distinguished engineering colleague, Dr. Wei Sun, the aorta fails first, just like a dissection, through the intimal and medial layers, and the advent tissue remains intact. So the bottom line is that as it enlarges, the aorta loses its normal elasticity, because it's inelastic, it suffers a very high wall tension, which we believe makes it vulnerable to aortic dissection.
1: That's a beautiful point. Um, what can you tell us of, of the family patterns that uh, you tend to see, um, especially that you're working on, on the genetic side of, of uh, aortic aneurysm?
2: Mohammed? we stumbled upon the recognition that Thoracic aortic aneurysm is a familial disease. Of course, everyone has known about Marfan's disease for over 100 years. But um, we were making rounds one day, Marianne and my team and I, on a middle aged woman on whom we had repaired a type A aortic dissection three days previously. And we asked her, she was well enough to have a conversation, and we asked her, Has anybody in your family had anything like this? And she um, smiled and said, Doctor, don't you remember you operated on my mother? Of course, I had no recollection. That was several years earlier. And then we asked her if anyone else in the family had been affected. And she became tearful, unconsolable. And come to find out, her daughter, her 12-year-old daughter, was the youngest human being ever to die at our hospital of a type A dissection. So there we had three generations in one family. And that's when our residents and our students went to work constructing family trees. And the long and short of it is that we found in 21% of our patients with aneurysm, there was a family member with a known aneurysm somewhere in the body. And imagine, if you will, how high the true incidence must be if 21% already have had an image that has disclosed an aneurysm. So we feel, especially for the ascending aorta, that it is a highly genetically mediated disease. That's how we stumbled on it. Dr. Diana Milowitz in Texas had, uh, uh, a year or two before, Mm -hmm. found the exact same number uh, that we found. And if you take her data and our data, you can superimpose them perfectly one on the other.
1: Yeah, it's great. I want to stay with the gene therapy and you you said that there is a promise for gene therapy in the future. What what do you anticipate would that be, and what would happen to surgery?
2: Yeah, well, I'm a a heart surgeon like you. I'm not a geneticist by any means, but I do recognize how important genetics is in thoracic aortic aneurysm, probably in every single human disease. So I've tried to learn a little bit, and I've tried to push genetic investigation as much as I can. Now, um, when I am very encouraged about the enhancements of our care that will come about through genetics, I'm not talking about going in and modifying the genome. That may be possible in the not-too-distant future. But I'm thinking that knowing the mutation can help us predict for a particular patient how that aorta will behave. Furthermore, if we know the mutation, then that should take us through basic science to the protein that's affected. If we know the protein that's affected, then I am hopeful that conventional drugs can be designed that can prevent the aneurysm from progressing and causing complications later. Uh, Do I think that uh, this will eliminate aortic surgery? I don't think so, not by any means. Maybe after my generation and your generation, maybe something will happen. And if you'd like, we can speak a little bit about drug therapy for aneurysms. But um, I think that perhaps in the long term, maybe for children being born today, if they have the, the gene to cause an aneurysm, maybe by the time they're young adults will have drugs that are targeted to the particular mutations.
1: Excellent. Stay, staying with the point of drugs, uh, uh, Dr. Alf Triadis. What's, what's happening to Losartan and the beta blocker? There is, a, there is a big controversy going on. Could you just put our minds to rest with your own views and comments?
2: Well, mankind has always wanted a magic pill for everything. The elixir. Yes, always. Everybody wants a vitamin that they can take to prevent heart disease. Uh, and, and every candidate molecule or drug has, has failed to be uh, confirmed for heart disease in general. Now, Dr. Hal Dietz and his colleagues have done the most tremendous scientific work implicating the TGF beta regulation in the causation of Marfan's disease and other aneurysms, just the most superb high-quality research. And it all suggested in the animal model and in very young infants and young children with Marfan's disease that losartan was having a beneficial effect. And I had the privilege of sitting with Dr. Dietz in his office and seeing the graphs and seeing the aortic size just stop growing. So there was tremendous hope for Losartan trials, and they started all over the world. And The the biggest one was recently reported, and I had the opportunity to review that study. And the bottom line is that Losartan did not meet its expectations in this large clinical trial. The hypothesis was that it would cause better results than beta blockers. There was no placebo arm, The, the comparator was a beta blocker. And it just didn't meet its goal. Now, maybe the dose was too low. Uh, who knows what else may have gone wrong. But um, the other important point that I think we have to stress for our colleagues in medicine and surgery who deal with the aorta is that even the comparator of beta blocker is very poorly substantiated. And. Uh, and we put a uh, review as a letter to the editor in NEJM that has a table that Dr. Bulat Saganshin from my team, our research director, put together of every study of beta blocker treatment for Marfan's disease. Yeah. And it's a very mixed bag. There's never been a demonstration of a positive clinical effect. and uh, and. Th- to use a beta blocker as a comparator. I, I just want people to know that it's not an established proven treatment. I wish it were. Now, we always want to do something. And beta blockers, they make sense in a way because they they diminish the cardiac impulse. Yeah. They make it softer. Yeah. And I personally think that their most important effect may be at blocking um, epinephrine storms, which can come from physical exertion or from an emotional event. We know now that two thirds of dissections are triggered by an extreme emotional event or or an extreme physical exertion in a patient with an enlarged vulnerable aorta. I think the, the biggest benefit of a beta blocker may come from putting a cap on the severity of the epinephrine response to those stressful events. I think it'll cap the heart rate and the blood pressure, and that may be the biggest benefit of a beta blocker. I don't start patients on a beta blocker myself. They usually come to us on a beta blocker.
1: Excellent. Um, I know that uh, you, you're doing a different uh, type of research on, on different uh, levels, different grounds, uh, one of which, which is amazing, is the genetic sequencing. Uh, that you're doing and I'm hoping to join you as a postdoc at some stage. Um, would you like to share with CTSNet viewer and subscribers a breakthrough and something that you have achieved on that line?
2: Well, there are two answers I can give to that, Mohammed. One is that we have been fortunate to sequence a lot of human beings with aneurysm disease. Um, Dr. Alan Bale runs our sequencing laboratory and we have already complete results on 105 human beings with aneurysm. There are another 75 cooking. It takes a long time to read 2.2 billion letters right. of a genetic code. So. We have looked for all the variants that Dr. Milowitz and others have identified for Marfan's, Loewy's, Dietz, Ehlers, Danlos, and all the familial entities. And we found already among those 105 humans, 21 new variants that are uh, very promising as disease-causing mutations. Yeah. They're all different letter changes, but they reside on genes known to be involved in the development of aneurysms. So that we feel is very exciting. And we feel that very quickly, through work at multiple centers, we'll have a dictionary where you can look up the letter change, know if it's causative for aneurysm, and and then know the behavior of patients with that particular mutation. That's all based on the work of Diana Milowitz and and others. That's that's one point. A second point has to do with the silent killer nature of aneurysm disease that you pointed out. Because it's a silent disease, the biggest problem is to identify in the general population individuals who have an aneurysm. That's not easy to do. Once we identify the individual, you and I, our teams, we're not going to let them die from the aneurysm. We'll triage them based on size, symptoms, whatever. And we won't let them die. We'll intervene in the vast majority of cases before an an aortic event occurs. But the problem is to identify them. So um, we, together with scientists, from Celera and applied biosystems, we looked at 33,000 different RNAs in the peripheral blood of aneurysm patients and compared them to normals. And we found the RNAs that were most up or down regulated. In other words, the most dysregulated from you and me and other people without aneurysm disease. And We put 41 of them on a chip. And it turns out that that chip can distinguish with an 80 percent accuracy whether you have an aneurysm or not in the thoracic aorta so we're very excited by that we have replicated that already in a different population we're doing a third replication but we're excited we feel it does have the potential uh, perhaps to identify Patients in the general population. I'm hoping it could be like a PSA for prostate cancer, yeah. but we're not at the cl- stage of clinical application yet. It's a research tool at the present time.
1: Sure, great, Dr. Uh, I know that you've got a long day uh, ahead of you. I'd like to thank you for the time uh, today. It's been an honor uh, talking to you and taking your interview for CTSnet. Thank you very much. Thank
2: you, Mohammed. Thanks enough.
0: Thank you for listening to ctsnet To go your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNetVideo by following at ctsnet.org on Twitter or by liking CTS Net's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTS Net To Go. Have a great day.